0: Just to put this into perspective, what often happens is people come to me and say, which company should I not buy from because they're bad companies? And my answer to that is I can't answer that. And I can't answer it because there's no way of determining across the board which companies are doing good and not because some companies get called out. It doesn't mean the other ones aren't having issues or problems, but the ones that are called out, in some ways, I can't say that they're the only ones who have an issue. And so ESG has that potential to give us that baseline that we're all looking for esg has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021 join tom fox the voice of compliance on the esg report and learn about sustainability risks opportunities and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding esg
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with Matt Friedman. Matt is the founder of the Mekong Club and is really one of the world's leading advocates and experts on modern slavery. So I've asked him to come on and talk about that topic in the context of ESG. So Matt, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today.
0: Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm really thrilled to be here.
1: Matt, if you could start off by maybe telling us a little bit about your professional background and also What is modern slavery?
0: Okay, so I've been working on this topic of what's called human trafficking, modern slavery for about 35 years. I started with the U.S. government. I was with USAID. I was posted in Nepal for eight years, five years in Bangladesh, a couple of years in Thailand. Then I switched over to the United Nations, and I worked with one of the larger counter-trafficking programs in the world before setting up the Mekong Club, the organization that I work with now. Modern slavery is basically when you have a situation where a person is tricked and deceived into a job situation where they can't get out and they don't get paid. So for the most part, it has the same characteristics of slavery in general, where you basically have a person who is trapped, they are disenfranchised, and they are taken away from their family and their community. It often happens to migrants who are taken from one place to another. And just to put the Issue into perspective, about 40 million people are estimated to be in modern slavery around the world. In fact, there are more slaves today than any other time in history. And about 25,200 people enter per day somewhere in the world. In the U.S. context, about 700,000 people are estimated to be in forced labor, human trafficking, modern slavery conditions.
1: Matt, unfortunately, many Americans, when they think of modern slavery, still think of the movie Taken. and yes. I've been privileged to know Gwen Hassan for several years, and Gwen has been one of the leading voices in corporate America on this. And Gwen said, Tom, I'm talking about modern slavery in Chicago, talking about it in Houston, talking about it in Los Angeles. I was wondering if you could really help the audience understand that this is that could be one component of modern slavery, but it's much more broad and much more ubiquitous than what we envisioned from the movie Taken. Well, I'll start
0: with sex trafficking. I mean, there's lots of women and girls who have been tricked and deceived and forced into prostitution all over the United States. You know, it's often the runaway who ends up in a kind of a bus station or a train station. A pimp is there, befriends there, gets her into prostitution, pulls her there by threats or debt or addiction and so forth. But, you know, there's other forms of modern slavery as well. You have, for example, Latin Americans who managed to get into the United States They're picking our tomatoes and our oranges. Many of them are highly exploited. You know, they're indebted. They end up working for a couple of years. They don't get paid anything at all because that indebtedness basically holds them in place. You have domestic cleaners, people who have been brought in to basically clean people's homes who are in situations where they're kind of locked in the house, not able to kind of do anything to protect themselves and to escape the situation. We're talking about a whole range of different types of things that exist within the United States.
1: Matt, could you tell us a little bit about the work of the Mekong Club, educational, but also you work with corporations and other organizations on an active basis. So could you describe that for us, please? So
0: the Mekong Club is a non-government organization set up in Hong Kong to work with the private sector in a positive, supportive way to help them to understand the issue of human trafficking and what they need to do in order to address it. So we have an association. The association has about 60 members. Most of them are large banks, manufacturers, retailers, the hospitality sector. And we work with them to kind of educate them on what they need to know in order to address modern slavery. With emerging legislation that basically says if you're a big company, pretty much working anywhere in the world, you have to say what you're doing on your website to address modern slavery. There is a prerequisite that organizations need to understand this. At the same time, if they don't address it, the possibility of them being in a situation where they're named and shamed, newspaper articles come out related to them and so forth, that can have a devastating impact on their business, on their sales, on their investment opportunities, and so forth. So our role is to basically work with them, not against them. And I'll just say one last thing is that, you know, there are some non-government organizations that feel like the only way you can get the private sector to do things is to kind of hit them over the head, find something that they're doing bad and then embarrass them so they make changes. If you do that, but they have nobody to go to in order to fix these things, then basically they don't know what to do. So what we try to do is to just offer kind of the services, the consultations and whatever it is that the company needs in order to protect themselves.
1: And to do that, I had the chance to review some of the tools you have available. You not only have risk assessments and other Information which allows an individual organization to assess their own risk of modern slavery and human trafficking in their supply chain. But you have tools which help educate, you have tools to help companies manage some of these issues. I was wondering if you could really explain how and what Mekong Club brings to corporations in terms of active management tools in this area.
0: In order to get a sense of how the tools are developed and why they were developed, our association members, Meet on a quarterly basis. We have a finance working group, manufacturing, retail, hospitality. And during the time that they're together, they debate and discuss and identify what they consider to be the types of tools that they need to protect their business. For example, the banks wanted typologies. A typology basically identifies the various steps that a criminal and a victim go through and the transactions along those steps, and which of those steps could be considered to be red flags or nefarious. So those red flags can be used to search big data to identify if there's an issue or a problem. A lot of them wanted kind of e-learning toolkits. So we developed 15, three and a half minute videos. But since 97% of what's out there is in English, we put it in Cantonese, Vietnamese, Burmese, Thai, Lao and so forth, so that we could educate factories and workers on issues related to modern slavery. We've done all kinds of trainings. We have all kinds of analysis we've developed an app and the way the app works is basically an auditor goes up to a migrant in a factory, gets them to press the flag from where they come from, because obviously they don't don't speak the migrant's language. And then with headphones on in that person's language, it'll say, we're going to ask you some questions through the phone. If the answer to the question is yes, press green, no press red. You know, are you here against your will? Are you being exploited? Do you have indebtedness? Do you have freedom of movement, et cetera, et cetera? And as a result of that, we're able to identify modern slavery type situation. So the tools themselves offer remedies that come from the private sector companies themselves because this is what they say they need. And whatever it is that they need, they get. So we've developed about 32 tools. About half of them are available to people for free. The other half would be available to our association members. And this offers them a means to be able to figure out what they need to do in order to protect their business. I'll say one last thing, and that is one of the first things we do with companies is we do a self-assessment. They identify 60 questions, uh, yes, no, partially. And then based on that, we rate the extent to which they are kind of achieving what needs to be done related to modern slavery. Out of 500, most companies rate around 280 or 300. It demonstrates that there are things that they need to do, and those things we work with them in order to fix them.
1: Matt, one of the areas that really excited me is that the Mekong Club has launched the ESG project as one of the really worldwide leaders in the fight against modern slavery. And you've seen, obviously, the investment in ESG increase, but you focused on the S in ESG as it relates to modern slavery. So I was wondering if you might define the S in ESG for modern slavery, then move to some of the modern slavery indicators that are necessary to move forward in this area. ESG,
0: prior to COVID, I would say, was an emerging voluntary mechanism. But post-COVID, it's kind of on steroids, as we all know. The expectation that companies are just going to have profit, prestige, and growth as their indicators Now the fourth characteristic is a business with purpose. They have to demonstrate they're doing right by the planet, by their workers, their supply chains, their own internal employees, and so forth. So the E has been well-established. There's metrics, quantitative, qualitative ones that have been in line for a long time, and the G, to a certain extent, the same type of thing. The S has always been kind of the orphan, because a lot of people say the S, which includes human rights and modern slavery and safety and various other things. Is intangible, it doesn't have a measurable potential risk, you can't measure things associated with it. So, as a result of that, a lot of the indicators have what I would describe as superficial S indicators, but not much in the way of measurement. What we were trying to do with Refinitiv and with Reuters and other organizations that came together was to say, listen, we need to bring the S up to par with these other areas. And, you know, the type of indicators we're talking about is, do you have policies and procedures in place? Do you have a risk assessment mechanism that allows you to determine in your supply chains whether you have issues? Do you address the issue of unsafe or fraudulent recruitment that often results in debt? And if so, how do you address that? So it looks at the ILO indicators of forced labor and basically uses those types of questions in order to determine whether a company is has an issue or not, and this is again, in order to, as we know, there's carrots and sticks associated with ESG. If you're not doing anything, you're going to get penalized. If you're doing something, you get rewarded for that. But many companies haven't really gotten into the S yes related to ESG, and we're really trying to make sure that that happens.
1: Matt, one of the things that it has intrigued me the most about ESG is how it has evolved. So let me. See if I can explain in the context of your story a little bit. You've been working in this area, as you said, for 35 years. You yeah. see the fight against modern slavery and human trafficking directly in the S of ESG. Businesses have embraced ESG because they believe it's good for business. That could mm-hmm. be a shareholder like myself, institutional shareholders like pension funds, but it's also private equity companies. It's also banks yes. who are loaning money, it's also even insurance companies who are assessing risks. And in many ways, ESG is is not now being led by the regulators here in the U.S., the Securities and Exchange Commission and the EU, other agencies, but by businesses seeing this as a value. When you have these conversations now with companies formulating or putting the fight against modern slavery directly in the S of ESG, is that something they're responding to really and seeing it a little bit different in a business light now? I mean, when you stop and look at the number of indicators
0: that exist in many of the standard holder questionnaires, the S would have, do you support anything that could contribute to child labor? Do you support anything that could potentially result in modern slavery? If so, what are the types of things that you're doing? Many of those standards are insufficient. So what happens is investment companies come to us and say, can you give us a question list for different sectors, you know, for palm oil, for manufacturing, for anything related to seafood and so forth, so that we, when we're doing our due diligence to determine whether or not we want to invest in these organizations, can ask the right questions. So those question sets haven't really caught up to where ESG eventually has to be. Because as I say, ESG at present, is voluntary, and as you rightly pointed out, it's kind of business regulated. But I think that's going to change. I think what we're beginning to see, as some people have very overtly stated in the media, that you know it's greenwashing and it's bluewashing, and you know we have to have companies when they say they're doing something, actually demonstrate that they're doing it. I think regulation is coming. I think it's just a matter of time before regulation comes, as well as standardization. So that everybody can then be objectively measured to see whether or not they're doing the right things or not doing the right things. So just to put this into perspective, what often happens is people come to me and say, which companies should I not buy from because they're bad companies? And my answer to that is I can't answer that. And I can't answer it because there's no way of determining across the board which companies are doing good and not because some companies get called out. It doesn't mean the other ones aren't having issues or problems. But the ones that are called out, in some ways, I can't say that they're the only ones who have an issue. it. And so ESG has that potential to give us that baseline
1: that we're all looking for. And to that point, this week, over 100 companies sent a letter to the EU asking for some objective regulations around this very topic. So I think companies even want that as well. The other thing is you've got a great list of steps that companies can take, and you've broken it down into understanding, commitment, action, and leadership. I was wondering if you could walk us through these because many of the listeners to this podcast are compliance professionals, and these are all steps, it struck me, that are going to be very familiar to them. One of the things I'm trying to emphasize in this podcast series is, guys, these are things that you can implement now. They are not hugely costly. They are steps you can take. There are surveys, questionnaires, and assessments you can use. These are things that will make your company hopefully more robust. So could you walk us through
0: the list you've got? Let's start off by saying if you don't address these things and you're one of the unlucky companies that's called out because you have been looking at tier one of your supply chain and measuring that, but you never looked at tier two or three, and then an investigative journalist found something there and directly attaches it, that can have a significant impact on your company. And we did an analysis a couple of years that said that $64 million in profit in market share and investments and so forth is lost on average for each of these so-called scandals that results in an organization being kind of named and shamed and that happens, reputational risk and so forth. So the various things that we kind of focus on, number one is that The leadership needs to understand that this is an issue that's relevant and important and it's tangible and people care about it. And so making sure that C-suite and senior level directors and managers have access to the information. Second thing is to have a point person or team of individuals within the organization that are the focal people for this. And they would obviously be more trained. They would receive whatever tools and whatever instructions. And so if anyone needed something, they would go to them. The third thing is policies and procedures. Do you have policies that you put in place? Do they have a zero tolerance statement? Do they go into detail about the various elements of forced labor and modern slavery that the ILO and the United Nations and the UN Guiding Business Principles and so forth have? Another thing would be training. Who do you train? How do you train them? How often do you train them? What do you train them on? And your contractors and subcontractors, do you get down to that level? And if so, you need to train them in the languages that are relevant to them. Risk assessments. You know, there are certain geographic locations that are hot simply because you have a lot of trafficking taking place in those locations. There's certain countries that have disproportionate emphasis on vulnerabilities for migrants and people entering into modern slavery. How do you determine if there is risk? What do you do to measure that? What are your due diligence approaches? And then when it comes to Let's say that you enter into an agreement with factories in a particular location. What kind of auditing? Do you have worker grievance apps? Do you have mechanisms in place to ensure that the worker voice is kind of looked at? If you find forced labor, how do you remediate it? Do you have a plan? Do you have an approach? And lastly, the leadership side of things. Some organizations, for whatever reason, as they move forward on their journey of understanding modern slavery, just feel like, well, this is a terrible thing. We want to do something to help beyond just addressing risk. And some of them either get involved in programs to help trafficking victims. They develop tools themselves. They basically donate to NGOs, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things are easy to put in place. They're not complicated. They're not expensive, but they kind of immunize a company from the possibility of getting modern slavery. And I'm sure a lot of the people who are on this podcast have been exposed to this, but I just have to say, I do a fair amount of remediation work you don't want to be in the receiving end of having this designation of modern slavery associated with your organization. It's a very emotive word. It can be a very damaging word if that's associated with your organization. And you've got to take these things quite seriously.
1: Now, that really brings up a great point because in many ways, it is exactly that reputational issue that is much more important than any fine or penalty or really any other sanction a regulator might bring to bear. Because the reputation can last, I don't want to say forever, but once you damage your reputation, then you have to work to get it back. Let me turn to a topic you've hit on a couple of times, and that's beyond tier one. So tier three, four, and five. How do you help a company, a compliance professional, or an ESG professional think through an approach to the number lower level tiers down your organization?
0: Yeah, most of the organizations I would work with would have a three-tier system Tier 1 assembly, Tier 2 component parts, Tier 3 raw materials. And let's say you're a shoe company and you have 1,400 kind of factories that you work with. Those companies have been auditing significantly Tier 1 for 25 years. You generally don't find much of an issue at that level. But when it comes to the rivets and the shoelaces and the zippers and the the textiles and the sole of the shoe and so forth, nobody's really been looking at Tier 2. And when it comes to the raw material, very few organizations have. Now, why this is relevant is because the legislation, the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, the UK Modern Slavery Act, the Australian Act, has as its expectation that you have to know and understand your entire supply chain. And so you go from, let's say, 1,400 factories to now 5,000 audits that you're supposed to do. Who's going to pay for that? How is that going to be done? So what we're beginning to see is a lot of sharing of audit information. You have competitors who in the past would never share something like that who say, okay, we'll do the zippers, you guys do the rivets, somebody else do the shoelaces. They're getting down into tier two, not so much into tier three yet, but what they're identifying as part of that process is a way of being more efficient and effective. But I'll say one more thing, and I I won't mention the company that did this, but there was one big company that decided that they wanted to go all the way down to tier three. And so they hired an organization to help them with that process. They spent a bunch of money and I was at the briefing for that. And what I found very interesting is they said, well, we found some forced labor and some other bad things. But what we really benefited from with this is we knew everything from our CEO down to tier one, but we had everything below that was a black hole. Now we know from the CEO down to the lowest level. And now we know our entire business. We know where there's quality issues, we know where there's value issues, we know where there's everything else. We don't know why we didn't do this earlier because we would have benefited a great deal from this process. Had we been looking at all of these tiers a long time ago? So I I walked away from that briefing feeling like, well, you know, there's other reasons to get down into these tiers to really understand what exists in the real world related to your business.
1: And I think that's a great point because to me, it speaks to the business reason for doing this as well. Let me change the focus just a little bit with the following story. And it's not an anecdote because it happened to me. 10 years ago or so, my wife and I were in San Diego, California, and we stumbled on a discount store. And they had blue jeans, non-labeled blue jeans, for $5. And we thought, well, this is just great. And they were at least quality enough that we could try them on and walk out with them wearing them. I'm not quite sure how long they lasted. But now I look at that and go, wait a minute, is that an indicia of human slavery? Because if you have a price point that is so far below market price, there has to be a reason for that. And is it a business reason or is it something a little bit more nefarious? Is that discussion resonating or is that really just kind of a one-off that I made up in my head?
0: Yeah, I mean, those jeans maybe at some point cost $30 and then they made it to the discount store and they ended up at $5. But you often hear the antidote related to the $5 t-shirt. Obviously, people who are in forced labor circumstances are doing this because how can you get a t-shirt or a polo shirt for that price? Sometimes it is an exploitative situation, but other times I lived in Bangladesh for five years to make clothes in Bangladesh is quite cheap. You can actually pay the workers a decent salary. What generally happens and what often happens is the brands pay for the employees, but the managers within the factories withhold that money and pocket it themselves and cheat the workers themselves. So it's not really an indication of whether or not a $5 t-shirt can be you can do it and you can pay people. It's what happens with all the various levels and the steps and the middle people along the way that determines whether or not people are cheated at the end
1: point. I want to ask you a question about the name of your organization. And I'd say we're relatively close in age. To say something is from the Mekong, for me, brings up visions of a very romantic Vietnam before the war or perhaps after or during the war, Apocalypse Now. But the Mekong River is a major waterway throughout Southeast Asia. So I was wondering if you could tell us why you've named your organization the Mekong Club.
0: Yeah. Prior to setting up the Mekong Club, I worked for the United Nations in the greater Mekong sub-region, which is what it was called. And it was called that because of the Mekong River. It went through China, it went through Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar, all of those countries. And so When we were setting up the Mekong Club, the companies that encouraged us to set this organization up said, you need to come up with a name that doesn't scare the private sector away. If you use human rights in it or modern slavery in it, nobody's going to want to talk to you because they're going to say, well, you know, are you talking to that organization because you have an issue? So because we worked in Southeast Asia and China, we said, okay, well, the Mekong goes through all of those locations. Let's call it the Mekong Club. Because it's gentle, it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't scare anyone away. Now, you know, just from my own personal situation, I've been on the Mekong River in all of those countries, and it is still quite romantic in certain locations. Obviously, there's issues and problems associated with it, but some of my fondest memories living in Asia for the last 31 years have been in and around that particular river.
1: So, Adam, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the Mekong Club, on yourself, or really the entire fight against human trafficking and modern slavery. Where would you suggest they go or at least start? They can go to our website, themekongclub.org. You know, it talks
0: about what we do, how we do it. They can talk to organizations that are listed as partners, the logos of the organizations to get a general sense of what it is that are happening anything and everything related to modern slavery, human trafficking, forced labor, and every aspect of that is what we do. I can't tell you anything about the environment. I can't talk about governance. It's not part of our remit. But having worked on this for a long time, we've pretty much experienced and seen and addressed about every kind of issue you could possibly imagine. So we're just trying to pass that along to the private sector. I believe that the private sector has a role to play that in some ways is more effective than the NGOs. And, you know, I just encourage people to look at that. I don't know if I can do a shout out for my book. Absolutely. Can I do that? You bet. Okay, this is a it's called Where Were You? Profile in Modern Slavery just came out. It addresses 35 years of experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, the experiences that I've had. And it kind of explains how I got into working with the private sector, having left the donor world, the government world, the NGO world. And I'll never go back. I really enjoy working with the private sector. Compliance people are some of the most amazing people I've met and worked with. They really do care about things. I just wish the general public had more of a sense of what compliance people and risk people do because it's amazing and it has contributed to making the world a much better place.
1: Matt, we're going to link to your book in our show notes, but you tell our listeners where it's available for purchase. On most
0: platforms, it's a Penguin Random House book, so it's available all over the place. A lot of people get it from Amazon.
1: Well, Matt, this has been a great episode. I wanted to thank you, number one, for all the work you've done. You were part of my education in this area. As I mentioned, we actually met at a conference in Singapore years ago where I heard your talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask that I hope we can continue this conversation.
0: Yeah, there's all kinds of other things to talk about related to this going deeper into the topic. So I'm, I'd welcome an opportunity to continue talking about this.